Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the special series on the New Books Network that's about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, host of the series. Today, I'll be talking to Helen Sword about her book, Air and Light and Time and Space, How Successful Academics Write, published by Harvard University Press in 2017. This book is heartening, like a warm bowl of soup you hold close. The soup heats you through your palms, the rising steam pleasantly wets your face in warmth, and after the bowl you feel ready to make a start. Helen Sword has written a book of research, on research, so that we can research. Air and Light and Time and Space explains how we write, while recommending how we might write better. Helen Sword refreshingly combines data analysis and humanities-based reflection. Interviews and questionnaires supply the evidence for her conclusions about how academics write, but Helen draws other conclusions through and over the data, as when, for example, she contrasts artist and artisan, or when she adopts the computer science term context switching, or when she cites Heidegger to offer a perspective on the life of the writer when the writer is living outside the everyday of admin and children and teaching and crossing items off the shopping list. Helen Sword has a style all her own, and no wonder, right? She wrote the book on it, Stylish Academic Writing. Listen to the interview here at Scholarly Communication. That book is about the writing itself and what makes it good. Air, Enlightened Time and Space, covers new ground makes the writer him or herself the topic. But the book does this in Helen's voice, in her refreshing tone. She cares deeply about writers. In her refreshing manner, she's resourceful in finding ways to introduce us to writers. And in her refreshing view, Helen knows when to call a fact a fact, and otherwise just to let readers decide for themselves. Helen is an honest guide to the writing life of academia. She tells us exactly how she feels about things, and she hides nothing of her own strengths and failings. For example, in the introduction to the book, readers are given the rundown on her ethnographic methodology, only then to be given the list of Helen's expectations for the data, all of which proved false or at least inaccurate enough for Helen to have to rethink a lot of her study. Readers bear the fruit of Helen's honesty, because Where a reader might have chosen the book as a path to successful writing, the counterpoint is made clear by Helen right from the start. There is no one path. In the natural sciences, this is called a negative finding, one that disproves a hypothesis. Scientists don't care all that much for negative findings, mostly because of personal bias and funding bodies and editorial policies at high-impact journals. But negative findings are hugely informative, just as Helen's are. Writing is tough for academics because writing is tough. However, it is also true that writing is not tough, and precisely these paradoxes and idiosyncrasies of this impenetrable act of communication are the things that 
Helen's sword lays down and all their messiness. Again, readers bear the fruits. If Helen had imposed a categorical schema on her interview transcripts and questionnaire sheets, we readers would have missed the insights that, for some, writing is a bid for perfect craftsmanship. For others, writing is a journey into a foreign language. And for some people, writing is practiced as a team sport. But for other people, writing has all the loneliness of long-distance running. We readers learn about ourselves as writers through the detail of Helen's accounts of writerly practice, which accounts are generously set out for us so that we can hear writers in their own words. One of Helen's resourceful techniques for opening this inherently private process to public view is the writer profiles judiciously placed throughout the book, much like her spotlights on style throughout stylish academic writing. Readers will also find eminently useful Helen's things to do, capping off each chapter, lists of reflective and practical exercises which leave a reader feeling like he or she has accomplished something. Best way to be feeling when you're looking for guidance. And Helen Sword guides. The openings and closings to the book and to the book sections are her places to confer with readers intimately. In these places, we see how Helen drafted and redrafted passages of text in the book. We hear that she completed the manuscript in a hippie bus permanently parked in Northern California. We learn that Helen's own writing habits are high on determination and artistry and enjoyment and short on collaboration. But we learn, too, that Helen now does cultivate social habits in her writing and would not lose the benefits for the world. Helen becomes herself an example for writers, not a model, an example, to be remembered, but above all, to be regarded as one more person who's learning to write better. Helen Sword's diagnostic tool, BASE, B-A-S-E, another resourceful technique of hers, tells writers where they stand right now so that writers can decide where they'd like to stand in future. Base touches the four corners of a writer's practice, the psychology or behavioral habits, the craftsmanship or artisanal habits, the relationships or social habits, and the feelings or emotional habits. Base builds every writer's house, that is, shapes a writer's world when writing. But writing habits like dwelling paces come in all kinds and forms, and far be it from Helen to advocate a writing building code for academics. Helen's purpose is, as she writes, holistic and inclusive. Because in her years-long research for air and light and time and space, that showed her one thing, and that thing was the individuality of writing. All writers write somehow, but every writer can stop to reflect on how he or she does write, and just as usual, usefully can stop and see how it is that others write. Air and light and time and space invites writers to take a break from considering writing in order to consider writers, which we will consider today on Scholarly Communication, this special series on the New Books Network that's about how knowledge gets known. Wherever writing and knowledge connect, there the communication of scholarship is taking place, and there too we at Scholarly Communication have our place. So let's begin today's episode, Helen Sword and Air and Light and Time and Space. Helen, welcome to Scholarly Communication. Thank you so much, Daniel. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Um, what I'd like to probably start off with is to hear how the book uh, came about, where the idea came from, and uh, how it is that you, yes, arrived at this wonderfully bound book from Harvard University Press. 
Well, in some ways you've described what happened. It was shifting my gaze from writing to writers. I started out as a literary scholar. And so it was not too big a jump for me to start looking at academic writing kind of with a, a literary scholar's gaze, right? Close reading of texts. That was something I knew how to do. And so I started doing close readings of academic texts, and that was what led to stylish academic writing and the book that preceded that as well, The Writer's Diet. But when I was working on stylish academic writing, I started um, running writing workshops or being asked to talk about writing or uh, pitching writing workshops at conferences. I was really interested in talking to people in different disciplines because I wanted to know more about the writing styles of those disciplines. And that was a huge eye-opener because I found out that so many of my preconceptions about academic writers were not, in fact, true. Um, I assumed coming out of, I had a PhD in comparative literature, I'd always worked in literary studies. And so I assumed that if you have a PhD, you know what nouns and verbs and adjectives are, and that I could waltz into a group of academics and start talking about the structure of sentences and basic grammar. And I would, I would see people in the room with this terrified look in their face, like, you know, when I'd say, oh, circle all the verbs in, in your paragraph, they'd kind of look around at each other like, what? <laughs> and so I, I began to discover as I talked to actual academic writers about their work that there was all kinds of anxiety there. There were all kinds of power issues I didn't know about or hadn't really thought about. So many issues that certainly affected what went on to the page, but weren't evident there. And so that was the lifting of the gaze for me, from the words on the page to the people who put them there. And I, I knew by the time I'd finished writing stylish academic writing that the next book had to be about writers and about their processes. But it was, it was a pretty scary jump for me because it was basically going from being a textual scholar to being a social scientist. And I've never pretended that I am a social scientist, that I have that training. So I, I made quite a conscious decision from the beginning to wade into that whole interview process that you've described and the talking to writers and trying to find the stories to do it with a, a humanistic scholar's gaze rather than with a rigid um, social science methodology because I, I didn't have those tools and I've never felt a particular affinity with that, that form of research. So that explains both how I got there, but also the kind of hybrid methodology that I developed working on it, which was, as you said, it was all about mess. It was a messy methodology because I'm comfortable with mess as a literary scholar. And I'm comfortable with the messiness of, of what I found, I think, about the writing process. And I find it interesting that you say, 
I mean, you're coming from the humanities, from literary studies. You had to wade in in this book into the area of social sciences. And yet clearly your link must have been the experience of writing. I mean, that was something that you could very much relate to, I'm sure, on your own terms as well. And as people spoke more and more about writing, it would it would appear to me anyway that, you know, it, it increased your understanding of what you yourself are experiencing, I would imagine. Absolutely. And it really opened my eyes. Um, at this point, I'd been working for quite a few years outside of literary studies in faculty development. So I was working with academics from all across the disciplines, looking at issues around teaching and learning, which is also about communicating complex ideas, um, just as academic writing is. And um, so I, I had already had this experience of coming out of the disciplinary silo and kind of popping up my head, <laughs> you know, and looking around and going, gosh, um, not everybody thinks and writes the way we do over here in literary studies. And so um, I think I had a kind of inherent fascination already with that wider landscape of academic writing. And I was really curious to learn what it was like to become an academic writer if you went into physics because you loved the science. You know, I went into literary studies because I loved literature and writing. So, you know, it was, it was kind of a clear path to the academic writing, but so many people in other di disciplines have found it to be this almost burden that they had to take on in order to be academics in the research area that they're passionate about. And so even discovering the range of emotions around academic writing was, was an eye-opener for me, something I hadn't really thought about before. And that's why now I'm writing a book that's very much about the emotions around academic writing. It's just such interesting and fertile terrain. That's it, that that meshes very much with my experience. I work in a writing in the disciplines program and and deal a lot with natural scientists and come just as as you do from a literary studies background and entered much as you did because I like writing and reading. <laughs> and what I've noticed is that yes, indeed, if you are in the sciences, sometimes even in the social sciences, you say writing and you can almost see like a blank appearing on people's faces. It's 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 not for, let's say, the majority of people in the sciences a natural part of what they do. They, they, they see it as, you know, an extension of sorts that they've got to deal with somehow, but it certainly isn't in the core of their work as scientists. And that that is that is a I mean, it's not entirely true in a sense because of the whole arm of publication and the way that science gets communicated. But it's something that for somebody who's working in a writing, writing um, in the disciplines uh, program has to deal with and understand because, and it's mm -hmm. something that your book also helps people understand because that's the, that blank has to be filled in by us. That there's got to be ways of opening people eye, people's eyes to, you know, what writing is really. Yeah, and it's not just scientists. It happens in the arts as well. I just today uh, had a conversation with, uh, with a colleague who's in dance studies, 
And in the performing arts, there's a real phobia about writing amongst many people who came in through the performance arts. And then if they want to become a certain kind of scholar or even a certain kind of performer who applies for grants, for example, or who writes a catalog for an art exhibit, suddenly they, the person who's always been into the the visual arts or into some kind of kinetic art form like dance, has to be able to write as well. And it becomes a sort of extra thing rather than intrinsic to the discipline. And so my colleague is trying to find ways of getting, of helping students and colleagues see the connections between, for example, dance and writing so that they don't feel like these two separate things. But what was really interesting for me researching this book then was talking to people in all these different disciplines. And I found so many scientists who cared deeply, deeply about writing, cared deeply about communication, cared deeply about the craft of writing, and find it very frustrating when they have, say, PhD students who say, oh, you know, I don't really want to write, I want to do the science. And they say, no, you've got to, it's got to be the whole package. And so scientists have been amongst the, um, I guess my, my most, um, avid customers for my books in a way, because there are so many scientists who really care and give a lot of attention to science communication. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it seems that you hear different, just as you were saying right now, I mean, you hear different uh, opinions and views there from the scientific community. I, I mean, I've heard one uh, principal investigator, PIs, as they're called in the lab, say to me, well, I pretty much spend my entire day weighing up the right word for what it is mm. that I'm doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I have plenty of other people tell me, though, that, yeah, we biologists think in figures. You know, we just try to scaffold it all with a bit of text. So, I mean, you've got these extreme positions, clearly, as to, you know, what writing is. And I think that uh, it shows up probably in every discipline, but probably the humanities have, as their textual base, that sort of step ahead because they just expect everything to be written down. I mean, would that mesh a bit with your experience in, in talking to so many people in writing? Yeah, but I'm not sure I would call it a step ahead. I think in some ways a handicap. It was a shock to me when I moved into doing higher education research and going to conferences in higher education to find that people there don't read an entire paper from, you know, hard copy word for word, which is what literary scholars do. They come in with their PowerPoints and their bullet points, and then they they make eye contact with the audience, hopefully, and talk to them. Both, um, both forms of communication have their pros and have their cons, I think. Um, but what was really striking to me is how the extent to which people in any discipline become enculturated so that they lose their awareness that people might be doing things differently anywhere else. And that, for me, was the most one of the most interesting aspects of the writing, but uh, of the research. But it's also a really core component of my scholarship, and I think, and of my books and of work that I'm doing now, trying to bring together 
online writing communities and that kind of thing that getting people thinking outside disciplines and learning from each other rather than seeing themselves as kind of special and encased in this in this particular way of doing things yeah and writing has that power um as as i'm sure you know and uh, are discovering amongst also people that you work with i mean this there's so many people who say that you know writing and thinking have a way of interrelating which which seems just somewhat more intimate than perhaps other activities that we do you know mm. i mean especially in the area of um, you know academic research and i mean one of those old sorts of conflicts comes about when you know the more general public deals with somebody who's in an expert area and they get the the general public or the people from let's just call them the non-experts um, get the feeling the expert is holding something back you know maybe even obfuscating what the real intention behind what it is that he or she might be writing is because they use big words they use complicated sentences and so on and it's been and, and and I think it was in your book that Douglas Hofstetter says that um, academics can also become a bit immune to this idea that you can also just say something in a straight, more straightforward manner, in a more basic manner, because of the fact that they're so caught up in their everyday research, which to them becomes more normalized and more normalized, more normalized year after year, of course, that they have all these little shortcuts that they use in their thinking. Mm, and when they absolutely. approach, obviously, a slight, and when they approach a slightly more wider audience or the non-expert, as I was calling them, what they are missing are the basic questions. So if you walk into, you know, a department of literary studies and say, well, what is art? You know, everyone's going to be, oh, yeah, well, <laughs> you know, one of those questions. But, but, but actually, that is really what matters, you know, at the end of the day. Of course, the specialization is important because it will help answer that question, not because it will answer the specialist question. So I think that might be some of the source of this misunderstanding between the non-expert and the expert is just the, you know, the levels of engagement, which could easily be leveled out, as I think is what you're trying to do with your projects. Yeah, and I think that uh, those questions are very much at the core of stylish academic writing, especially the ways in which we get caught up in our own disciplinary discourses to the extent that we actually forget or don't realize that the way we're talking is not the way everybody talks. Um, and there are aspects of that, I suppose, in kind of the wider picture of being an being a writer in any particular discipline. But as I found, as you already said in your introduction, what really astonished me from the research, I guess, was how, how little currency, in a way, the disciplinary stereotypes had when I talked to people um, in terms of, you know, I couldn't predict that a biologist was going to hate writing and a literary scholar was going to love it, for example because I might end up interviewing them and finding exactly the opposite. <laughs> I couldn't predict what types of scholars would say that they had really great writing habits or really terrible writing habits. Um, it much more came down to individuals and their personalities and their ways of being. And while there were some disciplinary patterns, um, there weren't as many as you might expect. What I saw was this just inf 
infinite variety of human beings engaging in the incredibly complex and variable project of writing. And we're always trying to simplify it, aren't we? We're always trying to find the magic bullet that will make it easier. We're always trying to find the book that will just tell us how to do it. And the the fact is that there is no book on how to do it that's going to work for every one of us because we all have such different ways of approaching so many aspects of our life and that plays out through writing as well. That makes writing such an enormous act. And and I think that your book is certainly one, I mean, as as I said in the introduction, what it offers us is that, you know, that breaking of that hypothesis, that there is a way of describing it, explaining it, or giving, you know, a set of guidelines that will actually, you know, lead you to the end. And and, and what you're telling us is, well, everyone's got to get there by themselves anyway. Not alone, but the way they do it, right? And, and, and yeah, and which means which what... means being aware of different ways that you could do it, and trying out different things, and but also being aware that maybe what works for you now will change in ten or twenty years, um, as our lives change and as our ways of doing things change. Um, but really one of the biggest, you talked about the hypotheses that I had at the beginning that then got shattered really within the first seven or eight interviews. I think I interviewed a hundred people and within the first seven or eight, I realized that my main hypothesis was clearly false, which was I'd read all these productivity books, um, by people like, um, Robert Boyce, um, professors as writers, Paul Sylvia, how to write a lot. Um, uh, there's the one Zerubbabel, the clockwork muse, and they're all basically about how if you want to be a productive writer, you do certain things. You write every single day, no matter what. You don't pay attention to your emotions because emotions just get in the way. You just sit down and write. And if you're not doing these things, then it's a character flaw. It's something wrong with you. So you should be doing those things. And I happened to be one of those people who read these books, started getting up in the morning and writing every day before breakfast, had had a kind of conversion experience like, oh, this is the way, this is what works. And then started going around giving workshops to colleagues saying, here's what works. (laughs) Um, This is what the experts say. I do it. I know it works. You should do it too. And I would have people say, but I can't write before breakfast because I have to write the dog and make the children's lunches and and this and that. And I just, you know, you're just making excuses. I didn't say that to their face, but that was what I thought because I'd, I'd, drunk the purple Kool-Aid, right? I believed this. And it was only as I started interviewing people that I realized uh, how few of even what we call successful writers, people who are making academic careers, publishing enough, in some cases, publishing a lot, and how few of them actually write in ways that... um, resemble what these writing gods say is how we all should be writing. And that was when I had to take a step back and go, wow, okay. 
<laughs> maybe there isn't just one way. And if there's not just one way, then how the hell do I write a book about how to become a more productive writer if there's not just one way? So that was, uh, that was where I had to go then. Um, try to figure out how do you offer a smorgasbord of possibilities to people without making them then just feel lost or feel like you're not giving them any guidance at all. So how do you give people the guidance to walk around the smorgasbord and figure out what they should try? And that's uh, where many of your different techniques come in and, and really help the writer along. I think one of the things that you operationalize so well in the book is is the use of metaphor to give you know, the writer, a vision, a picture of what it is that he or she is doing. Um, I'm thinking, for example, in the first part where you talk about behavioral habits and these ideas of, okay, well, am I a blaster or am I a sculptor, mm-hmm. right? Am I a bungee jumper or am I a mapper? By the way, the the blasting metaphor had one of my favorite lines in the book by Darwin, yeah? I scribble in a vile hand whole pages as quickly as I possibly can, right? So this this is blasting at its best. Yeah. <laughs> I love the vile and, hand. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> totally Victorian. <laughs> and, and, and then later on, are you a, a, a carrot or a stick person? Another one of my favorite lines in the book from writerdie.com, right? Yeah. You've got the gentle mode which has pop-up reminders. You've got the normal mode, which makes unpleasant sounds if you're not writing. And then you have the kamikaze mode. Keep writing or your work will unwrite itself. I know. <laughs> I don't know how many of my friends I had to read that line to and just say, think about it. <laughs> the stuff is getting deleted now. Um, I know. And, but, and yet there are people who love that kind of tool. Whereas I would hate that kind of tool. And so that tells you right there, there's going to be any given way of doing it. There's going to be the people who love it and, and the people who hate it. But metaphor, I became obsessed with metaphor while writing the book because so many metaphors kept coming up, both in the, the books about writing, these writing guides, but then in the interviews themselves. And so by the end of the book, I had to write a whole chapter on metaphor just to um, kind of try to make sense of them all. And I find myself since then, metaphor, thinking metaphorically about the writing process has become um, something I can't let go of really, because I find it both so so helpful. Um, Well, a, a complex and helpful way of of working through the complex task of writing. Yeah, and no, I mean, as as you've made clear, I mean, it's so difficult to study this such this so complex act of communication. It's it's so difficult to, you know, pinpoint all of its boundaries and to figure out exactly it is what we humans do when we're writing. It just mm. seems to break any set of categories. I wonder though if I could bring in a metaphor that I had to think of when I was reading the book. Um, very many uh, listeners will be familiar with writing centers at, at um, colleges or universities and the non-directive method that's so typical. Basically, you know, the mentor or the, or the tutor takes on the person who came in as themselves, right? They listen to what it is that they need and try to guide them to what it is that they're trying to do in their piece, but not, you know, say you have to or right. correct their grammar or whatever. Mm-hmm. And to me, the book seems like... It, in a way, like a consultation, 
which is what those things are called. Uh, you know, it's 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 a way of individualizing the whole mm-hmm. process. Mm-hmm. Is, would you would you go along with that as a possible metaphor? Yeah, it's a form of coaching, I think. Um, you know, and coaching, well, there are many different forms of coaching too, I suppose, very directive ones, but I'm thinking more of the type of, of coaching where the coach is not supposed to speak more than 10% of the time because you're supposed to give space to the other person to figure out for themselves what it is that they in some ways already know, but to, to talk them through um, the options to discovering the one that will work best for them. And so I, I suppose I am trying to do that in a way. I'm trying to get my reader to, to be self-reflexive about, about themselves where, oh, this doesn't make any sense to me. I don't want to be that kind of person. Oh, this person's really appealing. I like that. Maybe I should try doing what they do. And uh, to move into the section of artisanal uh, habits, I, I, I thought that in the area of learning to write, which was one of the sections that you had there, you had some really interesting findings and some interesting ideas that, again, as you just said, you sort of opened up for the reader and say, well, consider this. For instance, in the area of, well, are you someone who has informally learned or are you somebody who has formally learned? It turns out that most people in academia, half or more, don't really learn writing directly from, say, writing programs or uh, writing centers or classes or anything like that. Mm. And to me, that's, that seemed like a a real argument for trying to get people to be just as you say, you know, open, reflective, using what they already know and, and, and reading. If you could sort of somehow get it so that, let's say, even people who in their disciplines are reading let's say differently. I mean, a scientist reads texts on an extractive level, right? Always looking for that bit of information, whereas it may be more likely that someone coming from the humanities is considering the text from informative levels, stylistic levels, this and that, and so on. And I wonder if, um, you know, just, just learning how to read like a writer could already be that informal learning that people already know how to do and could teach themselves. Well, I think being um, being self-reflective and also always being on the lookout for exemplars, that's one of the things I talk about in stylish academic writing, that if you want to change the way you write, um, one really good way is to look for examples of writing that you love and then reverse engineer it, figure out what it's doing and try a few of those things. And I suppose you could expand that to to say that the true, well, it's certainly true of the artisanal part of the process, which is the the di- the dimension of style, the dimension of craft in writing. That there's so much room for development and growth there for anybody. We're all always learning our craft, right? Um, and the more time you spend paying attention to it, the more you're going to develop. So that doesn't have to be something that happens through formal education, but formal education is good formal education at the right time is an accelerator of learning. 
So if you, as a graduate student, had a semester-long course, let's just imagine, where you look at academic, where you just looked at academic style, and you paid attention to your own style, you looked at your discipline, you looked at other disciplines, you, you did a lot of that kind of, you were taken through a process of reflective thinking as part of a cohort with somebody assigning a reading list of the best books in the field, you know, all those things that happen as part of a formal education, you would learn as much, you would grow as much in a semester as you might do in five years doing that same kind of thing on your own and kind of blundering around trying to find the best books to read and that, that sort of thing. But either way can happen, of course. And just as with teaching, where a lot of academics don't have any formal education in it, they just have their own observations, seeing how they were taught. So that's how they teach. And, and some people never really change from the way that they were taught and others do learn and grow over time because they put that extra kind of attention into it. Yeah. But I, th I think in, in most professions where you have a, a set of skills and a set of knowledge that you're expected to acquire by a certain stage, formal learning is generally the way we get there. And formal learning could include some kind of vocational on the job learning. But what became clear to me was that as academics, I already knew that most of us aren't taught to teach, but it became clear to me that most of us really aren't taught to write either. We think we are because we've done PhDs and we've spent a lot of time getting critiqued on them, but none of that is necessarily teaching us how to deal with peer, peer reviewers or how to um, be productive when you're also in a busy teaching semester and you have a whole bunch of admin duties or all those other aspects of being a writer um, that academics need to deal with. Very few people anywhere had had anything resembling formal learning in those kinds of areas. They picked it all up either by trial and error or maybe by a mentor somewhere along the way, sometimes just through luck. <laughs> and sometimes they still had a lot to figure out that maybe somebody in the office next door actually had figured out a long time ago, but they're not talking to each other about it. That seems to be one of the real inefficiencies of universities worldwide, uh, because uh, I, as my listeners will know, I'm here in Germany. I have experience of being in uh, America and, and England at universities. Your experience, which you're telling of us now, is also worldwide. They, these, these central sort of skills, which you'll know from your faculty development years as well, of, you know, teaching, writing, learning, and researching get such little attention, don't they? And uh, so much hinges upon them. And mm. They're so central. And, and, and to come back to, I mean, where you began, you, you said your aha moment of realizing that, you know, you can't, we can't just expect that you know everybody writes the way that I wrote or learned how to write, right? Of <laughs> yeah. all the anxieties or the power issues, as you said, that surround writing. I mean, formal education, if done correctly, very much so. I, I entirely agree. Agree, if done correctly, which really is a way of sort of opening reflective pra praxis 
if if that's done correctly, then we could do away with so many of these anxieties. And we could also make it so that people that are, you know, using to the best their research abilities or their teaching abilities and so on. Absolutely. Yeah. And at the end of the book, I've got this this quite short chapter, really, but it was kind of gathering up a lot of the thoughts I'd had along the way um, of how how do we change, not just as individuals, but as institutions? What are some of the things that we collectively could be doing to, to change our practice? And it just includes things like the supervisor who actually shows their graduate students drafts of their work so that the graduate students see that professors don't just sit down and write a first draft of a perfect article, that they go through this long struggle. When you're a graduate student, you might think it's only you because the academics in their, who are who are supervising you present themselves as being so polished and perfect. And so even just admitting to some of those kinds of um, vulnerabilities can be incredibly important to those who are coming along in the next generation of scholars. Um, So there there are lots of things that we can be doing institutionally and of course, individually um, to change the culture of writing. Um, but you know, it's, <laughs> it's just such a big issue and such a big challenge. And many books have been written about the ways in which, you know, neoliberal institutions and structures kind of, um, mitigate against those, those sorts of often quite human, <laughs> um, ways of doing things. Yeah, the the final chapter was a great uh, version of the what still needs to be done. And I thought there were so many fruitful ideas there, just as you were saying, for instance, this culture of transparency. Um, I think that in the area of writing, so much can be done there, especially online. I mean, even just a short video of sorts where a writer, uh, a professor talks about, for instance, the article that they just got off, even if it was just 15 minutes and talked about one problem that they had. Mm. I mean, that would be so much different. The impression would be so much different than, you know, the polished lecture or the impression that we generally get of educated people of being, you know, in command. And I think that's sort of what I would call writing provision, right? So just offering things out there to the university public, if you like, to understand, well, uh, how, how is everyone doing it? How are they getting it done, right? Mm. Yeah, and there's certainly people who are doing that. And, um, you know, I talked to a lot of really interesting people who are, who are also, who are doing amazing things with their students and their graduate students. Um, mentoring them, really paying attention to their writing in some cases because they said, nobody did this for me. You know, I I saw this gap. Um, In other cases, because they say, somebody did this for me and I want want to pass it on. Um, But yeah, there's so many aspects of academic culture that are, I guess, about not showing any chink in the armor. And... um, and so it makes it a very difficult 
environment to admit then to being anything less than perfect at any stage along the way. And then the amount of anxiety that that causes for so many people <laughs> is just massive. And it, and it seems so simple to break down. I mean, your book is a perfect example of how it might be when you interview so many people and get them talking. I'm thinking, for example, of Marisol Asenio in um, sociology, who, according uh, to uh, the highlight on her, had an epiphany literally during the interview that she had never viewed writing as part of the real work of her mm. studies and research and then saw, ah, actually it is. And I mean, if there was ever a better argument that for, you know, let's just talk about writing. Or Absolutely. And I had let, a lot let's of just people. Talk about yeah, a lot of people who had maybe not epiphanies, but basically said, I've never... I've never sat down and just talked about this. I've never thought about this, some of these questions, particularly the question around emotions with, with writing. Um, one of the questions I asked pretty much everyone in the interviews was about, um, well, I was, really, I was really interested in resilience. How do you develop resilience as a writer? So I asked the question of, can you tell a story of a time when you got criticized or rejected, you know, as a writer and how you dealt with it. And of course, everybody had a story. Nobody said to me, oh, that's, that's never happened to me. And that's what I wrote about in my metaphors chapter then that there were so many rich and really, um, really multi-sided, really interesting metaphors that people used to talk about their writing. But when they talked about the experience of rejection or harsh criticism, the metaphors were, were all the same, basically. They were about being kicked, whacked, bruised, um, pissed on from a great height, you know, really, really awful. <laughs> and these, these were people, for the most part, I was interviewing them because somebody somewhere had told me, this is a successful writer. You should interview them. Um, very wide criteria in terms of success, but still somebody somewhere had pointed and said, you should interview this person about their writing. And these people were telling me how awful, how awful it felt to be at the other end of, of this academic practice that we all are familiar with. And, you know, I found myself thinking not just, um, you know, why do we do this to each other, but also then how do our students feel, you know, when we pass this on, when then this is the culture that we think is how you grow writers by telling them everything that's wrong. Um, so I'm, I'm writing about that now in the, the book that I'm working on, on writing with pleasure, you know, the power of the power of praise, the power of positive affirmational kinds of ways of, of reading each other's work. And again, because we're not trained to do any of this, we only know how to follow the examples that we've seen in others. And so if the only examples we've seen are other people beating on us, we turn around and beat on the next person because we think that that's how we're 
what we're supposed to do, that we're somehow either helping them or helping the discipline. So there's yeah, it a- would appear, it, it would appear if I, if I might just say uh, that it, it harks back to just the same issue that we were talking about, that, I mean, if you, if you could divide scholarly practice into knowledge and competence or into an objective, uh, let's say, you know, an object of inquiry, something that is objective, and a subject, subjective mode, a way of doing things. So the competence is the way of doing things, and the knowledge is, you know, the object put up front. When people say that, you know, research or, or, or academic writing is objective, I think that's what they, at base, what it is that they're trying to say is that you either know something or you don't, and you can be wrong or you can be right. But then there's this entire other side of the practice, which is the practice, this, well, how do we get there? How do we know? What is a way of getting it out to other people? What is a way of doing it better or worse and so on? And, and that's where things like writing or the teaching or the other issues that we were talking about come in. And if your only view of academia is the knowledge, the object, then you have every you know, motivation to just be harsh and yes and no. Yeah, it's really interesting as you're talking, I'm thinking about one of the earliest um, kind of issues that came to fascinate me as a literary scholar. And I think already in high school, I found it really interesting to think about the interaction in the literary text of form and content, right? I was always interested in poetry and the thing about poetry is you can have a million poems that are all about love or all about death or whatever, but the formal structure of the poem is always going to be as much a part of the communication as the words being used, how the words are put together. So the style, we might say, which explains, I guess, why I went on to write about academic style. But what you're talking about, I think, is kind of a form form content thing, right? When you talk about the knowledge, but also then the communication of the knowledge, the building of the knowledge, all those things that also go with the writing. And just as form and content really cannot be separated from each other in a literary text, I think that, that the form and content of academic writing of the academic enterprise can't be pulled apart and you know so you, you can't just have the knowledge without all the ways in which we build the knowledge we find the knowledge we communicate the knowledge we think about the knowledge and we feel about the whole process so the whole emotional side of academic writing is just repressed basically in many quarters. And that was, you know, really interesting part of the interviews, asking people um, about their, their emotions, about their own academic writing. I didn't have a single person I interviewed who said, oh, I feel no emotions in regard to academic writing. I mean, there are probably a few people out there who, who might say that, but most immediately had plenty to say about how they felt about academic writing. And, and what um, your book does wonderfully is, is, is to make it so that we, I, I mean, this will sound a bit crass, but so that we use those emotions also to write as we want to. 
you know, not to ignore them because I mean, when you deny something, it's never going to help you, you know, but if you just as you're saying, as the interviews made plain, that emotion is part of it, well, then we need to acknowledge that, you know, bring that up front with all the other issues and then write that way. Right. Absolutely. Uh, and yeah, and and that feeds into style as well. Yeah, I, I, yeah, we're we're going to communicate more humanly if we communicate at, we're going to be more effective communicators to other human beings if we communicate as human beings. And that includes emotions and, and admitting to emotions rather than pretending that academic enterprise can be free of emotion. And that's one of the things in the in the social uh, habits, uh, the, the third part of the book that really comes out uh, quite clearly. I, I love how you say that the intended readers that we sort of drill into our students are uh, disapproving and critical, just as you were saying before, right? I, so so it's, it's, you've got it wrong, you're off, there's something faulty in the logic or whatever. And yet what we miss is that real readers are typically bored and indifferent. And if we would, <laughs> if we would learn to write that way, you know, that not only we writers are in possession of feelings, emotions, and physical states, but the readers as well, then we might do our research a heck of a lot of good. Um, for example, one of the points that you make is that uh, – in, in the same chapter here on the social habits is that undergraduate education is not really doing a great service to uh, future academics when basically less than 10% of writing is done only for one person, the professor who is going to then correct it. Mm. I mean, we need to be also making it so that already then, I mean, part of the education is so that they learn how to communicate. So it's got to be for more than just a single person audience of who's writing books for one person, right? <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. And for real readers, not necessarily either critical readers or bored and indifferent readers, though, I think that generally people who pick up a book or article or click into a blog or whatever else on most any subject are there because they're actually quite interested. And um, maybe we need to give our readers a little more credit for coming with a kind of positive emotion <laughs> to, to our writing and, and meet them there. I was reading recently um, Peter Elbow, you know, really, um, important writing scholar who talks about something that he calls the doubting game versus the believing game. And he says, most of academic work is the doubting game. We read something, we, we say, Oh, prove it to me. I'm, I'm not sure you've, you've proven it adequately here. You know, let's check your methodology. Let's check your facts. Let's check your grammar. What else, whatever else. And he, he really just poses the question of what if we as readers came to other, other academics' work or to our students' work or anything else um, and played the believing game and said, ah, oh, that's an interesting idea. What happens if we, if we follow that idea? What else could we learn here? And, um, yeah, I think it would be an interesting exercise as a writer to imagine yourself writing for 
the believer rather than the doubter. I think that would change the way that one might write and it might change our own confidence then and change then in turn the responses that we get from our readers. So, yeah. I think you offer it. I think you offer at the end of that section on on, on social habits um, some wonderful tips on how that reality might come about. Uh, a writing group, as you said, which mm. uh, you know can be organized informally among colleagues or among fellow students, or even broader writing network, as you call it. So a a semi formal, as you put it, alliance among writers, so that they collaborate or even mentor each other or have exchanges across disciplines. And I think in just such you know scenarios, you're going to more likely find the believing attitude, as you said, from Peter Elbow, rather than the doubting attitude, because there's the personal side. You've got either virtually or literally in in reality, you know, the person with you. You know, you're looking at what they are in progress on. It's not, you know, published work yet. And it's just more natural, I think, for people to be there on the, you know, the side of the author a bit more. And, exactly. and that would cultivate precisely this. Exactly. And and so I really advise people, well, I try not to be um, didactic about just about anything having to do with writing. I'm much more about here, here's a range of possibilities make a considered decision here, but rather than I'm going to tell you what to do. But if I were to give one piece of advice around the social dimensions of writing, I would say really, really strongly consider belonging to some kind of writing group. And I define a writing group as being two or more people who meet at least more than once to talk about any aspect of writing. So if you have somebody you meet with for coffee once a month, one other person, and all you do is you sit there and complain about your supervisor and how um, you wish that they were more sympathetic to your writing, that's already a writing group. So it doesn't have to be some big kind of formal thing, but it's, it's opening yourself up to the social dimensions of writing and particularly to the idea of having supporters in your corner, having some cheerleaders, having some people you can talk to about writing who are not there to criticize you, who are there to help you. And I can wholeheartedly agree with that because my experience in writing in the disciplines and working with writers groups um, has only been positive. I haven't really gotten I can't think of any feedback where someone said, no, the, it was a bad idea for me to get together with people and talk about my writing. Well, that's um, something that was an eye opener for me because coming out of the humanities, I'd always been a sole author and I'd always, I'd been kind of enculturated to work in a way where I didn't ask people for feedback. I really didn't want to know what anybody else thought until I thought it was perfect. And then when I would hand it over to somebody else to read, I was, of course, always shocked if they didn't find it perfect because I'd spent so long on it. So the idea that I might actually show people my work at much earlier stages just to talk about it, you know, just to get ideas early on, low stakes, non-threatening, um, supportive, and I don't necessarily mean by that rah rah, everything is fantastic, but people who are in my corner 
um, saying, hey, have you thought about such and such? What if you tried this? Um, I, I'm wondering why this paragraph and this paragraph are sitting so far apart when they have seemed to have to do with the same thing. You know, all those different ways that we can give each other feedback on each other's writing without tearing it apart. And I had had so little experience of that kind of um, conversation in my own writing life that it didn't occur to me even to go looking for it. I didn't know what structures might be there to make that happen. So that's something I've really tried to um, to suggest that other people, to give other people strategies and resources for thinking about ways of doing that. And I'm, I've also now formed a, a online writing community where one of the things that we do is what I call a window session, writers in dialogue with other writers. It's a sort of semi-acronym there. Um, so that it's just small groups who are giving each other feedback on small things the title, a few sentences, just quick feedback so that you're in the habit of talking to other people, to other people about your writing all the time. And what I experienced almost immediately when I started doing this is that there's a lot of fear. I myself feel anxious every time I put a piece of writing in front of another person. And then I almost in, invariably, when it's this kind of supportive conversation, feel enormously grateful to them afterwards. And I've seen this so many times the other way around where somebody's really fearful. What am I going to say about it? What am I going to say? And then afterwards they're like, oh, wow, that was so helpful. Thank you so much. So we, we can do so much for each other um, in the, the social dimension of writing whether it's talking about craft or whether it's talking about the behavioral aspects of writing or whether it's talking about the emotional aspects of writing. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm just very much in favor of anything we do big or small that helps create those sorts of structures and those sorts of occasions. Yeah. That's what made me think actually of consultation, because that's what I primarily work with. Uh, here at uh, Heidelberg University. And that's been much of my experience as well, that people, you know, I'll sometimes leave because it's not my writing that's, you know, my piece of writing that's, you know, the object of the consultation, sometimes leave a consultation thinking, geez, I hope, you know, they got something out of it. And, you know, a day later, I'll get an email, which is like, I am so much further now, you know, yeah. thank you for saying that. And, and it's, and you just think, wow, it's so simple, you know, it's so <laughs> you just simple. need to care. Yeah, it's people helping each other, you know, in a supportive way. <laughs> Pretty revolutionary concept in academe, I know, but <laughs> I know, yeah. And and, and 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 as you make, oh, sorry, so, yeah. Well, I was just going to say that uh, people in the sciences and social sciences are generally not as isolated as humanists are in terms of. In, insofar as they co-author a lot, but a co-authoring relationship is not necessarily de facto a supportive writing relationship. And many co-authors never actually talk to each other about their writing. 
you know, about their assumptions around style or about their writing processes. They become very aware of each other's ways of doing things and each other's quirks, but often they're irritated by them because they're not actually in a position to talk about them and work through them. So there's, um, when I ask people in my, my base diagnostic that I do, um, looking at the behavioral, artisanal, social, and emotional dimensions of people's writing practice. And I'll make sure that you've got the URL for that because it's a little diagnostic that you can that you can do online. But the questions about the social dimension of academic writing are not, you know, do you do you write with other people? It's to what extent are other people a supportive part of your writing practice? So you could yeah, have somebody and, who's supporting you, who's not even in your discipline or not even an academic at all, but who gives you, who gives you really good advice or feedback or just emotional support or whatever else around your writing. And you could have a co-author in your discipline. You're the only two people in the world who are such experts in this one particular thing and you publish everything together and you hate each other's guts and write in completely different style. So that's not necessarily always a a positive social encounter. And in fact, it may be quite corrosive. Yeah, because the lab, people talk about, you know, the collaborative nature of of science. Um, I don't think, you know, the majority of scientists would call the lab socially a conducive environment. There's a lot of competition going on there. And when it Mm. comes to the actual writing, just as you say, you know, there's jokes about, well, the second author is really the one who, you know, sat down and wrote the article. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you've got, you know, eight others who are up there and they might have written, a, you know, a cumulative 15% of what's actually on the page, or at least, you know, gave it a read over and edited it a bit, which is certainly part of writing. But I don't think it's the, you know, I think when people say, in the lab and the collaborative effort, they get a view of, you know, a round table and everyone's got a page in front of them or their laptops open and they're writing together. I mean, that that's not happening. No, that's right. And um, yeah, I heard, I heard many, many stories, particularly from the social scientists where it tends to be just a few authors about power imbalances and all kinds of issues that were around um, the supposedly collaborative relationship, but some interesting conversations with scientists as well. I talk in there a little bit about Eric Mazier at Harvard, who got so frustrated with the amount of time that he was spending editing other people's writing that he developed a protocol for his entire lab. And it's designed to bring the graduate students and the postdocs through a process of learning to be good writers good editors, good collaborators. And so if people want to be part of a particular chunk of research that's going to end up as an article, they all have to commit to being part of the writing and the editing of the article. And there's a very um, kind of defined process and protocol that the article goes through. And as a result, he said, their, their hit rate for getting published is, is very high because the papers themselves are really quite meticulously edited. 
but it's also kind of a career pathway for the for the emerging scholars because they're they do have conversations about the writing and the writing process and the collaborative process. It's all made transparent rather than opaque. And so they're kind of trained up in how to get through that part of that process well as physicists. Um, and so that kind of thing is out there. And there, there are people individually or in, in groups that have those kinds of really excellent practices but again, they tend to have developed them themselves, you know, in their silos. There's not kind of discipline-wide sense of how do we create a good um, writing environment in a research lab or that sort of thing that I know of. At yeah, least. I, I don't know of it either, but I, I followed up Ed Mazur and in, in, in the work that he's doing. Uh, I mean, I can wholeheartedly recommend to uh, listeners because... Um, it is just phenomenal. I mean, it's exemplary for what, you know, can be done in the sciences for sure. Um, I, I, it would be remiss of me if I didn't touch at least upon the last part where emotions come in. We've said quite a lot. Uh, there's just one point there, though, that I certainly wanted to pick up. Um, resilience, as you said, being an, uh, an interest of yours and also the risk involved in, in any sort of, you know, publication of research or doing research on the edge, the cutting edge. Um, it, it's it's funny and it's it's shocking the, the role that luck can play. And as you give uh, pointers to widen people's view on, well, what is luck in the area of writing? You, you say, for example, you know, well, then just trust your intuitions. I mean, I can say from my own experience, I can think of many a day where I thought, okay, today I've got to A, B, and C. And it turns out that while I was having my morning tea, an idea occurred to me for my current project. And around 3 p.m. in the afternoon, I realized, well, I'm going to have to, you know, <laughs> chuck over my, <laughs> my plan for the day. A, B, and C are not getting done. I'm going to have to go with this. And, 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 and what you say about, you know, the emotional side, the resilience is that as a writer, these moments, you know, you've, you've just got to be okay with. Because the opposite approach or the opposite reaction is clearly to despair. You know, what have I not done today? You know, is this even worth it what I decided to spend the entire morning on? Mm. Well, this is why I'm writing a whole book now on writing with pleasure, because there is, first of all, so little literature at all, even on emotions around write, academic writing. But what is there is about 90% about negative emotions. So we all know that writing is hard and it makes us anxious and it can be frustrating, all those things. But talking about the ways in which positive emotions can actually enable us as writers and help us become more productive, hopefully, but also just happier people, which I think is, is a, an ideal worth striving for as well, you know, that maybe we could be both more productive and less miserable. I, I think that sounds like a pretty good deal. And one of the ways to do that is to follow our pleasure in writing. So it means that when you have this idea that grabs you, is that's not the thing that you thought you were supposed to be working on that day, you, you go, well, what if I just follow the pleasure here and work on this thing that is, is telling me that this, that this is what I'm interested in right now? And... Um, you know, I've collected many, many stories of people who, when they've done that, that's been sometimes breakthrough. That's that's their way through. 
Having said that, though, we are all very different, and there will be writers out there for whom having a plan and sticking to it is the route to positive emotions. And the idea that you would just kind of follow your intuition on any given day would would just be so horrifying that, that that would not lead to anything good. So we're right back to that question of, um, of being conscious of your own ways of working and your own ways of being and um, allowing those to guide your writing process rather than some guidebook that tells you that you really should be doing it this way or that way. Well, that, that brings me, Helen, uh, and I want to thank you for your time, uh, to my last question, which is precisely about the guidebook and uh, the writing guide and a genre within which you're clearly uh, working, which I have tremendous amount of respect for and have learned so much from. And uh, my, my question is, what do you think then that the writing guide should be doing, given that, you know, writing is, as we've said, this massively complex act, which has no one way and and no answers. Well, both with um, my book, The Writer's Diet, which, um, and my website, The Writer's Diet, where you can put in a piece of writing and it will, you know, you push a button and it will tell you whether your writing is, quote, flabby or fit, or if you don't like that metaphor, you can change it to swampy or solid or cloudy or clear, whatever. But basically it's giving you a judgment about your writing style based on the input. So it's an algorithmic process. And similarly with uh, Air Enlightened Time and Space, I developed the base algorithm. So you can go to the website. So it's writersdiet.com slash base, B-A-S-E. And you answer questions about your behavioral habits, your artisanal habits, so that's your your craft dimension, your social habits and your emotional habits. And um, as a result of your responses to those, you get a assigned a profile, um, the seabird or the lone wolf or the well or whatever. And you're given some advice on where you might want to go to expand your writing base. That's the kind of metaphor there. And again, like the writer's diet, that's an algorithm. Input in, output out. Goes through a very simple little series of calculations. Um, So you could say that a rule book, a guidebook is algorithmic. It's telling you, okay, here are the things you need to put in to get this output. So put in your two hours of writing every morning, output productivity, right? Um, And that's the way a lot of them work. But for me, the key is that the algorithm is actually only there to lead you down the path to a heuristic. And so a heuristic is a framework. It's a set of principles, not a set of rules. So I would hope that if you've spent some time with the writer's diet, you will develop some heuristics around constructing strong, active, engaging sentences. But they're not rules, they're principles. And likewise, with the base, you would um, develop a heuristic around your entire writing practice. 
and that would be based again on principles rather than rules. And so the principles might be things like follow the pleasure, but there would be so many different ways to follow the pleasure when you're thinking about the emotional dimensions of your writing. Um, so I guess that's my relationship to the guidebooks. For me, they're not rule-based, they're principle-based. Um, I think one real distinction between my books and a lot of others that are out there is that they're, they've got a, a research base that they're built on as well. So they're not just my opinion or my observations of teaching, writing for however many years. They're actually um, several years of going out and finding out what people are actually doing out there. So what the landscape looks like before I turn around and, and offer any kind of advice. And so, again, that gives it quite a different flavor. It's not me saying, I know how to be a productive writer. I'm going to tell you how I do it so you can be a productive writer. It's me saying, I've talked to a hundred productive writers and here are all the different ways they do it. And here are some principles that you can follow that will help you become a productive writer, which start with even asking the question of what is product, what is productivity or what is success and what do you want from this? So it's a long, complicated answer because it would be impossible to give a simple algorithmic one <laughs> to such a question. That's what makes the guides that you write also, as you say, unique and, and very much uh, worth reading, which I want to recommend listeners to do. And I want to thank you, uh, Helen, also very much for taking the time. That is Helen Sword and her book, Air and Light and Time and Space, How Successful Academics Write, is out and was out in 2017 with uh, Harvard University Press. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Helen. Goodbye. Goodbye, Daniel. Thank you so much. And this is goodbye to all of you, and bye-bye, and until next time, here on Scholarly Communication. <laughs>